Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It's just a magnificent thing to visit and to see and to be inspired by. I got to tell you, uh, it's just very moving for me. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor John Happ discussing the statue of Benjamin Franklin in Paris. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Rhode Island Publication Society, publishers of the new book, Revolutionary War Defenses of Rhode Island by John K. Robertson. Available now wherever books are sold. Visit their site, ripublications.org, today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor John Happ, and he'll be discussing the statue of Benjamin Franklin in Paris, as well as the the legacy left behind by Franklin uh, in that city. You know, we often don't think of the American Revolution as a international affair, uh, but of course it was, and no one embodies that value as much as Benjamin Franklin. John Happ, much like Franklin, was something of a world traveler, and he spends a lot of time in the city of Paris. Uh, this article, in many ways, is a love letter to the Franklin Memorial uh, that's there, and that comes through in both his writing and his interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with John Happ. John Happ, welcome back. Thanks. It's really good to be here. John, your return guest, remind us of your background. So uh, I grew up uh, in Chicago and uh, studied at the University of Madrid, and that led me on to uh, work initially in South America and in Central America, and then uh, learning other foreign languages. I speak five languages now. I spend a lot of time for work uh, in Europe and uh, periodically in Japan. And so uh, on the side, uh, I have some uh, time to write letters and write articles. And so I have things published, as you know, in the Journal of the American Revolution on one hand, or Atlantic Coastal Kayaker on the other. And then Uh, Those are kind of two extremes, but based on some other work I've done about my father's military service, uh, the U.S. Embassy in New Guinea has now asked me to submit articles about the American influence in the South uh, Pacific, specifically in New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, uh, historical articles, maybe about World War II, maybe about American figures that have passed through New Guinea. And so they're kind of feel-good Americana articles that I submit now to the U.S. Embassy uh, for publication locally in the Solomon Islands and in New Guinea. It's kind of a cool uh, thing that I'm involved in. What first drew your interest into this topic? So I'm in, I'm in Paris periodically, and I remain just completely fascinated with the public art, the public monuments of Paris. Uh, I, I just am enthralled with that. And so many years ago, uh, I came upon Lafayette's 
grave, the Marquis de Lafayette's grave in Picpus Cemetery in Paris, and was just fascinated by that. So I learned as much as I could about Lafayette and the grave and uh, how well it's kept and maintained and honored to this day. Uh, I've written about that. Uh, Not very far away is a statue of Beaumarchais. And who's Beaumarchais and what did he have to do with the American cause uh, during the revolution? And so, um, you know, so the answer is, you know, I'm just enthralled with Paris and their public art and their monuments. And in particular, how these various figures, uh, Rochambeau, uh, people like that, show up in public art and in, in monuments in Paris. And it just drives me to learn more about uh, what is behind those monuments and what's uh, how it contributed to American history. And just fascinated how, you know, the French just appreciate their own role in the American Revolution. John, what took Franklin to Paris? So... October of 1776, basically, in that general area, Congress decides he's the man that they should send, among others, to Paris to help convince, conjole the French uh, to join the American side, to uh, seek uh, secret uh, arms shipments and make separate arms deals, borrow money from the French, all sorts of things. This was a secret role uh, that Franklin uh, was undertaking, but but he was a very public figure already in France, uh, known for his taming of electricity with that, with uh, the way he flew his kite there and had the key jingling at the end once lightning struck it and how he was able to uh, harness uh, uh, electricity in that way. But then also as a philosopher, and a common kind of uh, common man who gave, wrote about extensively practical advice about how to live properly, how to economize. And, and it just made him simply the most famous American in Europe at the time. And so based on his, you know, uh, you know, ongoing commitment to the American cause, uh, Congress made him an envoy to, uh, you know, covertly seek French assistance for the American cause. And so in that regard, he's uh, working maybe, maybe not with, um, with uh, Beaumarchais, who's, uh, you know, his well-known secret endeavor to supply the Americans with arms and equipment. But then, what I want to say is the passage of time is so such an interesting element in this whole discussion about the American revolution, because so many things take so much time. Franklin is in in France in October of 1776 in December of 1777, the Americans defeat rout. In fact, the British at Saratoga, And that prompts the outright treaty of friendship with France, where France is now officially supporting the United States, unqualified support for the colonies. Uh, It was such an important uh, uh, moment in history that even the King of Prussia, even the Prussians joined with the French 
in recognizing American independence and supporting the American cause. And then it wasn't until October of 1781 that Yorktown brings the British really to the table. Um, on the one hand, in 1776, Franklin's trying to raise money uh, for the American cause. And on the other, he's kind of sounding out the British as to you know, what they need to satisfy them, to get them off our backs and to, and, and to leave the colonies. But the British, in fact, in those days, and in, in the beginning of the war, for the great portion of the war, they're seeking unconditional surrender. So that was kind of a dead end until Yorktown brings the British to the table. And the fact that it was a combined French and American victory at Yorktown, including Lafayette, again, it was uh, a very momentous occasion. And that brought... Um, uh, the British to the negotiating table. And uh, I think that is now really what goes to the heart of your question. You know, what took him to Paris was one thing. What made him famous was, or what made it all the more important was, first of all, the Treaty of Friendship a year after he arrives. And then several years later, it's not until we're able to beat the British at Yorktown that finally gets uh franklin involved in the peace negotiations with britain to uh settle the war finally what were the contentious issues of the time well, the first fascinating part you know of the answer to that question is the fact that there are three men designated to negotiate on america's behalf franklin john adams and uh john jay and Adams and Jay, Adams is supposed to be taking the lead on this. Um, uh, Franklin at the time was uh, sort of a minister, I don't even know how to say that word, but anyway, he was, he was a, a key minister in negotiating with France. But then Congress sends John Adams over to take the lead in these conversations with John Jay. And so the first contentious issue is the fact that Jay is the fact that um, Franklin and Adams aren't really that compatible. They're not antagonistic towards each other, but Adams doesn't like the way Franklin works, tr literally. His work ethic, he thinks it's a little bit sloppy and lazy. He thinks he should have his nose to the grindstone more. Furthermore, Adams thinks that Franklin is placating the French too much. Adams wants to be a little bit more hard-nosed. He wants to stay free of foreign entanglements. And he thinks Franklin might be taking us down the road to be too entangled with the French. But with regard to the uh, peace negotiations themselves, the contentious issues are number one, and this was not an easy thing to accomplish, to get the British finally to recognize the independence of those 13 colonies as the United States of America. That has to be, in Franklin's mind, the basis of the negotiation. And I say in Franklin's mind because at the time of Yorktown, Adams happens not to be in Paris. And so when peace negotiations go forward, Franklin takes the opportunity to start to act freely uh, in these negotiations directly himself with the British. 
So he's establishing, first and foremost, a recognition of the United States as an independent nation. The second one uh, is fishing rights off of Newfoundland. America, in fact, Franklin, in fact, asked the British in these peace negotiations to concede Canada to the United States. Well, that goes nowhere. The British kind of fluffed that off. That isn't going to go anywhere. But what Franklin really wants is fishing rights off the Canadian coast of Newfoundland. The third most important issue is uh, a fight, you know, an, an argument between the British and the Americans over pre-war debts owed to Britain through trade, through finance, through various deals. And so that needed to be settled between the Americans and the British. The fourth, which was to me one of the most beautiful ideas, uh, presented by Franklin was our Western boundary. The 13 colonies you can visualize easily as being tucked along the Eastern seaboard there. But Franklin had the vision to say, we want the Mississippi river to be established as our Western border. That's the United States of America that we want you to recognize as free and independent. And I think that's fantastic. One final sort of issue was compensation to British loyalists in America whose lands were confiscated during the Revolutionary War. That issue was unsettled for weeks. The Americans were very, Franklin in particular, were very resentful of British loyalists in the American colonies who were actively fighting actively supporting the British. And um, Franklin wanted nothing to do with compensating them. The British wanted their citizens and their loyalists compensated for those confiscated lands. Um, it took weeks to settle. <clears throat> and that was finally resolved by the two sides agreeing that the individual colonies, the individual 13 states could decide on compensation for their loyalists. Franklin, knowing that probably the majority of the 13 colonies won't act on it, but um, uh, in any event, that was the agreement that was made and that settled that final issue um, uh, of compensation for the loyalists. Uh, and then that led, you know, having that resolved, that led November of 1782, again, the long passage of time here, 1782, the treaty gets signed. John, we know a lot about John Adams and his personality, a lot about Benjamin Franklin and his personality, very different men. What do we know about Franklin's contribution to these proceedings from that perspective? Well, exactly, we do. And uh, it's brought out by this sort of... Um, so incompatibility or, or yeah, between Adams and, um, and uh, Benjamin Franklin. The Treaty of Friendship with France, which the Americans were very happy about, asked of the Americans that they not make any agreements with Britain without France's approval. But that goes against, Adams believes, sees correctly that this goes against the American, very American notion of avoiding 
foreign entanglements. However, for as chummy as Franklin was with the French, for as well-received as he was in court, Franklin does, while Adams is away, does engage the British directly to negotiate these various outstanding issues to resolve uh, the peace. And so, you know, Franklin was loved by, uh, by the French. Um, there are women all the time at his uh, home in Passy, right outside of Paris, um, his court, so to speak, where they, he would entertain, they would converse. He actually met with different philosophers times throughout there. But it was a very, very chummy, comfortable relationship that um, Franklin had with the French. At one point, the King of France um, actually said to Franklin, you know, I really appreciate the way you're conducting yourself in, our, in my country. And so, uh, but Adams resented that. Adams resented it. You know, he lived with it. He knew Franklin was popular wildly popular. He knew Franklin probably deserved it too for all his scientific innovations and for what he contributed to the enlightened, uh, the enlightenment in general. But as I'm saying, he did not like the fact that Franklin was leaving American open to exploitation by the French by being so dependent on him. Adams thought the treaty of friendship with France was made by the French in cold, calculating terms. The French wanted to drag the war out and, and wear out the British as much as they could. Franklin thought the French were being really nice and they really believed in American independence and the ideas uh, of the revolution. And Adams just thought that that was uh, not the case at all. And so that's the main friction that I see, you know, uh, in those negotiations. And um, it, it really speaks to, you know, the role that Franklin played uh, in the negotiations. John, what did Franklin say of his time in the city? He, he, thought, he thought Paris was just uh, ideal. He, he said it's the most civilized nation on earth, as far as he was concerned. Um, you know, of course, who, who wouldn't say that about a people that, you know, toasted him constantly, wanted to be in his company, uh, you know, admired him. He, he was not flamboyant, Franklin, uh, but he was he was. But I guess you would have to say he was flamboyant in an understated way. The glasses, you know, reflect his, his he wore eyeglasses uh, periodically and that reflected his wisdom. He never dressed up in the French style or dressed up formally. He had old worn clothes, used clothes. I'm sure he's, I'm sure they were clean and presentable, but he did not go in with the French fashions. He did not go in for trying to make himself a European man. He presented himself as a common man to the French and they were just charmed by that. And what carried the day was his wit and his intelligence. And so he was really admired for what he was, for what he was. And, and that in and of itself is the, is an American ideal, not to be uh, loved and respected because of your lineage 
or because of your, you know, coming from the aristocracy or something like that. But for, you know, I guess Martin Luther King maybe said for the quality of your ideas rather than the color of your skin kind of thing. And that's what Franklin was to the French and they, and they loved him. And so what is he not going to say except that he considered France, you know, the most civilized place on earth, you know? So tell us John about the statue of Benjamin Franklin. It's an amazing tangible connection to it. Um, it's situated on the Place du Trocadero, which is the Trocadero in Paris. It's an elevated plateau, um, open, completely open space, statues to French heroes, and off to on one edge of the circle of the of the Place is Franklin's monument, overlooking the Eiffel Tower overlooking a, a magnificent museum to humanity. And, uh, and then, of course, the place is also lined with uh, three or four cafes and <clears throat> streets radiating uh, outward as they do um, more, more or less like the Arc de Triomphe kind of thing area. And so the, I would say the, um, the, the, the the park in which he's located, which happens to be called Yoke, not happens, but, but it's also uh, a monument in itself. The name Yorktown is the name of the square that he's uh, the statue is placed in. Beautiful, has to be maybe uh, an acre big, well-vegetated, well-groomed, just absolutely spectacular. And in the middle of it is this bronze figure of uh, Benjamin Franklin, and some people might recognize it as the same statue that sits in the central uh, area of the University of Pennsylvania, which he founded. And so, uh, and then the statue, his statue sits on these, on this base where is surrounded with plaques to Franklin. One, one of them says in French, I translate the genius who freed America and spilled torrents of light into Europe. The sage of two worlds, the, the sage the two worlds claim as their own. He spent so much time in Paris, so beloved by them, that they considered him one of his own. Franklin says his name is derived, is it comes from England. And there is some evidence to point to that correctly, that Franklin's people... The name Franklin came from France. The French, however, recognize that the, Fra that the French version of the name, Franklin, is also a common name in the northwest of France, in Normandy. And so they say that, Fra that the British Franklins came from France, and therefore Benjamin Franklin is actually French. Isn't that hysterical? But that's true. There was an assertion made that Franklin's people left uh, Normandy, settled in England, and then Benjamin Franklin himself made it, made it to um, the United States, uh, America, of course. And then across on the, on the um, further down on the statue, magnificent white marble, as they say, to this day, extremely well-maintained park and monument. There's a bronze uh, plaque. It's an engraving, rendering the signing, the 1783 signing of the Paris Treaty. 
uh, formalizing America's independence. It's just a spectacular uh, bronze plaque, and uh, in a in a in one of the most beautiful, prestigious locations in Paris that you could possibly imagine. So that's you know the monument so worth visiting, so worth putting on anybody's itinerary. You know there are people that lead battlefield um, tours throughout Europe, and somebody should address themselves to giving American Revolutionary Memorial tours in Paris because, um, you know, the, the, between the cemetery of uh, Lafayette and Beaumarchais and, and this Franklin statue, and I'm sure there are others commemorating America uh, and the revolution, it's just a magnificent thing to visit and to see and to be inspired by. I, I got to tell you, I'm, uh, it's just very moving for me. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, it helped me understand the revolutionary era better. I, I'm inspired by, you know, the monument. I wanted to learn more about it. Uh, I, I would have to hope that the average American uh, visiting Paris who sees that would also want to know. I mean, there's even a street named after Benjamin Franklin, Rue Benjamin Franklin. It's just incredible. But by delving into this, I, I couldn't help but think of parallels to modern history um, to, to conflicts, negotiating peace in various other parts of the world. And, uh, I just, I just think it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's such an honorable thing for the French to, um, you know, maintain these monuments all throughout Paris. There are historical, uh, references, people, places, things, what happened, when it happened. And so, um, I, I, I think it just, it helps understand real politics. Those differences, not between Britain and France and the United States, but between Franklin and Adams speak volumes to how we have to get things done in our American democratic system. Uh, Adams thought Franklin was being too easy on the French. Franklin thought Adams, you know, was overstepping himself and insulting these people that, you know, were, were there to help us. And so, um, it, it, it was, it's a magnificent contrast in personalities and understanding how to, how to get, you know, uh, things done diplomatically in a democratic society. I just think it's fantastic. John Happ. Thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode include works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>